and turn with me to the second chapter of Micah. We will read the first two verses. Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. And they covet fields and take them by violence and houses and take them away. So they oppress a man and his house, even a man and his heritage. As essential as is zeal for God's house and faithfulness and doctrine and purity in worship, we must never ignore nor neglect God's call to show mercy to those who are in need. It is true that faithfulness to the Lord God, as summarized in the first four of the Ten Commandments, is absolutely foundational to our being faithful to our neighbor which is summarized in the last six commandments of the Ten Commandments. It is certainly true that the first and great commandment according to the Lord Jesus Christ is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And that the second great commandment is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It is also true, as I noted in an earlier sermon, that idolatry in its various manifestations is indeed the root sin which leads to all other sins. For if we do not love and honor the Most High God, we will not love and honor man who is made in His image. But dear ones, it is also true that if we do not love and show mercy to our brethren, whom we can see, we cannot love the Lord God whom we cannot see. The significance of these scriptural principles, dear ones, is made absolutely clear as we contrast the first chapter of Micah with the second chapter of Micah. For in Micah chapter 1, you'll recall the prophet declares idolatry to be the root sin for which God has brought his covenant lawsuit against Israel and Judah. And for which God will judge them by sending against them the Assyrians and the Babylonians to desolate their cities and to lead them into captivity. However, as we come to Micah chapter 2, the prophet addresses the sins which will inevitably follow upon departing from the living God. And that is oppressing the weak and the helpless. If we forsake the Lord our God, you can count on the fact that you will forsake the brethren. For where there is no love for the Lord, where we depart from God, we will also fail to love one another. And God's judgment is likewise stored up and soon to be unleashed against Israel and Judah for their sins against their brethren, even as 
for their sins against the Lord their God. You know, we so often tend to think we can compartmentalize our sins so that they do not affect other areas of our life or affect others around us. But dear ones, such thinking is an absolute lie. How I remember the argument used by the social engineers to introduce sodomy into society as an alternative lifestyle. They said, what people do in the privacy of their own homes is their own business and will have no effect upon society at large. They can keep it contained within the four walls of their home and it won't affect them or anyone else. But dear ones, not only has sodomy not been confined to the privacy of the home, but it has fought its evil way into the very fabric of society. Or dear ones, consider as well how we are so prone to reason in our own hearts. If I neglect my secret worship time this one time, that's okay. It won't affect my life in other areas or lead to more visible sins. Or we may rationalize, if I harbor bitterness in the deepest recesses of my soul toward a brother or toward a sister, it's not going to affect my communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. Or we may excuse ourselves by saying, if I watch that lusty movie or look at that pornographic magazine or read that steamy novel, or listen to that profane music. If I do so in private, where no one else knows, where no one else sees, it's not going to affect anyone else. It won't show up in my speech or in my behavior. I can keep it contained. Beloved, sin is not neutral. Nor is it static. It is always dynamic. It always metastasizes and spreads like a malignant cancer to other parts of your life and mine. Sin, beloved, is a malignancy that will continue to grow unless we hate it. Unless we flee the temptation from it. And unless we avail ourselves of the mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to send it into remission, it will continue to grow and spread. That's the way sin is. You see, dear ones, to have the attitude that sin is no big deal because there is forgiveness with God is a very frightful presumption and testing of God. God's grace, beloved, is not to be viewed as a safety net which will save us from the dreaded fall when we take the dive into some serious sin or some even light sin, so we may think. We can't view God's mercy and grace and forgiveness in that way. Although God will pardon when it is sincerely repented of, nevertheless, That fall, 
listen closely, that fall will likely leave many serious scars in our lives and in the lives of others. Therefore, God, who is rich in mercy, pleads with us, abstain from all appearances of evil. Even that which appears to be evil, flee from. As we consider our text today, the sins of idolatry in Israel and Judah have indeed metastasized and have spread to sins of oppression against their brethren. And God brings His covenant lawsuit against His unfaithful bride not only for her idolatry, but also for her turning a deaf ear to the cries of the needy all around them and for her calloused oppression of the most helpless within the nation. The main points of the sermon for this Lord's Day are these. First of all, a scriptural overview of God's care for the poor and the helpless. Secondly, a scriptural investigation into the oppression of Israel and Judah. And thirdly, practical considerations of these truths. Let us consider then our first main point. A scriptural overview of God's care for the poor and the helpless. Dear ones, the Lord our God takes a very special interest in the needs and in the cries of those who are genuinely afflicted and helpless. Throughout the Scriptures, from beginning to end, God declares Himself to be the defender of their rights and to be their provider. Herein is both the mercy of God and the fear of God abundantly displayed. First of all, consider the mercy of God in this regard. In mercy, God takes up the cause of the oppressed and the needy. And He reaches out to help the fatherless and the widow. So the Word of God teaches. For we find in Psalm 68.5, a father of the fatherless and a judge of of the widows is God in His holy habitation. We find in Deuteronomy 10.18, He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow and loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment. God provides for those who call out to Him. He defends their rights. He vindicates them. He hears their cry for help. The Word of God teaches. Jehovah our, our God declares that when the cries for mercy and justice from the fatherless, the widow, the poor, and the, un, the afflicted go unanswered, when they suffer because their cause is viewed as insignificant, by the majority of people around them, the Almighty God will take up their cause and will defend their right. Furthermore, we note that in God's mercy, He commands the church not only to give to the poor and needy spiritual food for their bodies, 
but as well to give them physical food for their bodies. Not only spiritual food for their souls, but physical food for their bodies. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 17 through 22, you find in those verses God laying out how the people of God were to leave the corners of their fields for gleaning so that the poor can come and help themselves. They were not to strip the trees naked of the fruit, nor were they to take all of the grapes off of the vines, but they were to consider the fatherless, the widow, the needy, the afflicted within the land. We note in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, that the church was doing its job as far as caring for the widows. But there arose some dissension amongst the Hebrew widows and the Greek widows. And deacons were appointed to minister to the needs so that the apostles could devote themselves to the word and to prayer. God supplied an office in the church to minister to those who are in need. That tells me that that is a very important office. If God himself, being the defender and provider for the, for the needy and the weak, provides an office in his church to provide for them, God cares very much for the needy. In fact, in verse 7 of Acts chapter 6, as a result of caring for the poor, it says that the word of God then went out mightily, converting even many priests because they saw the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed, but they also saw the gospel of Jesus Christ in action, in caring for the needy. We find as well in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 that the church cared for the needs of other saints. There was a famine in Judea and all of the Christians, all of the churches and other parts of the world gave to the need of the saints in Judea. They cared for them. They provided for them. Why? Because God cares for the needy. And we must therefore care for the needy. I would have you to consider, dear ones, that the gospel of salvation not only redeems the soul of the believer, but the gospel of salvation also redeems the body of the believer. Otherwise, why would there be a resurrection of the body? If God cared not anything, cared nothing about the body and the needs of the body and caring for those needs, why would he bring about the resurrection of the body? See, our salvation, dear ones, is one of the soul and of the body. We will realize that full redemption of the body on that last day when the body is raised from the dead. And in fact, the gospel of Jesus Christ is many times manifested in Scripture by acts of mercy shown to the bodily needs of the poor and needy 
We read earlier quite a few verses from Leviticus chapter 25 for our Old Testament scripture reading today. Just to pull out one theme out of that chapter. The year of Jubilee. What was the year of Jubilee? It was a time in which God appointed that those who had to sell their property or who had to sell themselves into slavery in order to provide for their needs because they had fallen upon such hard times, God said they were to return to their possession. They were to return to their land. They did not lose their land forever. They were not enslaved forever as God's people. God cares, again, for the needy. We, we see this illustrated again in the fact that this idea of the year of Jubilee is, is spiritualized. When Jesus comes preaching in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. He says, as he opened the book of the prophet Isaiah, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. You see, the acceptable year of the Lord, the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament, pointed to that Captivity, or that, that freedom from captivity, returning to and being given the inheritance which the Lord had promised. It was a, not only in the Old Testament, a physical liberty and freedom, but in the New Testament, the Lord says, I come to declare and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Believe in me and you will enjoy true liberty, which that year of ju- Jubilee pointed to, you will be forever set free from captivity, from sin, from Satan, from your enemies. And so the year of Jubilee points to that glorious salvation of Christ. And you'll recall in the ministry of Christ how many times it says that he had compassion upon people and he healed them. He had compassion upon the crowd. They were without food and he fed them. The Lord, dear ones, never forget, never forget, He cares for the needy, the afflicted, the fatherless, the widow, those who are mourning and in great sorrow. He cares for them. And beloved, when we show mercy and compassion to the poor, when we show mercy and compassion to the afflicted. We ourselves, in this congregation, we confirm that we preach the true gospel of free grace through Christ to those who are spiritually hungering and thirsting. If we are ministering, dear ones, as we should, to the physical needs of those who are hungering and thirsting, it only confirms, as uh, the gospel goes forth from this pulpit, it confirms that we are preaching 
the full-orbed gospel of salvation. For the Lord said, Freely ye have received, and freely you are to give. Not only, dear ones, is the mercy of God demonstrated in his care for the poor, but as I said earlier, we want to consider very briefly the fear of God. The fear of God is demonstrated in all of the solemn warnings which the Lord issues to those who oppress the needy. In fearful warnings, God solemnly declares He will not only defend the right of the needy, but He will judge those who oppress the poor and the needy, or those who turn a deaf ear to their cries and to their pleas, who turn their backs upon the needy. In Exodus chapter 22, verses 22 through 24, listen to what the Lord says. Ye shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If thou afflict them in any wise, and they cry at all unto me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath shall wax hot, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall be widows, and your children fatherless. If you do not care... For the widow and the fatherless, God says, I will make you widows and I will make you fatherless. Very sobering words that the Lord issues. Does he care for the widow and the fatherless? Does he care for the poor? Absolutely. Listen to one other passage that illustrates the same point of the fear of the Lord in Malachi chapter 3, verse 5. the Lord says I will come near to you to judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages the widow and the fatherless and that turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. It's interesting, this catalog of sins. Did you catch who God classifies along with those who deny the rights, do not meet the needs of those who are afflicted, the, father, the, the fatherless, the widow? He classifies them and puts them into the same category with sorcerers, adulterers, and false swearers. He sends His judgment equally upon all in this regard. This is a heinous sin, dear ones, in the eyes of God to not care for the poor in our midst. To not reach out to those who are afflicted, who are mourning, who have needs in our midst. How can the love of God, John says, abide within us if we do not meet 
and attempt to meet those needs as God grants us grace. The Scottish ministers who wrote the first book of discipline of the Church of Scotland understood the duty of the church and of the state to do their part in defending the poor. That's the part of the state. And in providing for the poor, which was delegated to the church, when they addressed the magistrates as follows. Listen to what the Scottish divines said. We must crave of your honors, speaking to the magistrates, in the name of the eternal God and of his Son, Christ Jesus, that ye have respect to your poor brethren, the labors and manures of the ground who by these cruel beasts, the papists, have before been oppressed, that their life to them has been dolorous, that is, sorrowful and bitter. If ye will have God author and approver of this reformation, ye must not follow their footsteps, but ye must have compassion of or on your brethren." Moving from the first main point where we have just seen an overview, now let us move to the second main point, a scriptural investigation into the oppression of Israel and Judah. We want to consider the first two verses and then verses 8 and 9 in particular this Lord's Day from this chapter. I read earlier the first two verses. Listen to verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2 of Micah. Even of late my people is risen up as an enemy. Ye pull off the robe with the garment from them that pass by securely as men averse from war. The women of my people have ye cast out from their pleasant houses. From their children have ye taken away my glory forever." I would have you note what the prophet declares to be the first step in oppression. The first step in oppressing the poor and the needy. What is the very first step that leads to that oppression? He says in verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. And in verse 2, and they covet fields. You see, dear ones, coveting and devising iniquity, as did Ahab with regard to Naboth's vineyard, is where oppression begins. It begins in the heart of a man, coveting. Wanting, desiring, and devising by way of iniquitous schemes how to obtain that. That is where oppression begins. You see, although this coveting is in the mind, God's prophet here says it is to work evil. It's an evil work. 
God says to devise something evil in one's mind toward the needy or the afflicted. The outward uh, violence or the outward robbing of the poor is not where oppression begins. It begins in the heart of man. It begins with discontentment with our own outward estate so that we have little or no desire to sacrifice our time, to sacrifice our money, to sacrifice any of our comforts to help others. We're so self-absorbed in our own little kingdom, in our own little world, that we cannot see or hear anyone outside of that realm. It begins in the heart of man with coveting what belongs to others and striving to obtain it by fraud or by force. Dear ones, a tax system that taxes everything you own is one built upon greed and one built upon implicit ownership of all that is taxed. Whatever the government taxes, it is saying implicitly, it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. And you must give this much of that to acknowledge my ownership of all of those things. Such is the greed and the coveting that reaches out by fraud and by force and by violence to take what belongs rightfully to others in a wicked nation. And this oppression, dear ones, begins in the heart of man in refusing to hear the cries of the needy and to help them when it is within our power to do so. You see, one does not have to actively go out or to devise in his mind an evil plan against the helpless in order to be an oppressor. That's absolutely false. You don't have to go out and actively pursue, plan, scheme to rob and take from the widow or from the fatherless in order to be an oppressor. All you have to do is to do nothing. And you are an oppressor. You have allowed the cries and the pleas of the widow to fall upon deaf ears without turning a hand in any way to help to relieve them of their suffering, of their pain, of their heartache and anguish. One does so passively, not simply actively. Listen to the words, dear ones, of the larger catechism as it explains what are our duties under the Eighth Commandment, Thou shalt not steal. The duties required in the Eighth Commandment are giving and lending freely according to our abilities and the necessities of others. Giving and lending freely according to our abilities and the necessities of others. If we do not freely give when we have the power to do so, and where there is a need, a necessity. And we do not freely lend when we have the ability to do so. We are thieves. We are robbers. We are oppressors. 
of the poor. So our catechism teaches and so the Word of God teaches. In fact, the Lord makes it ever so clear that one of the reasons that He blesses us with wealth is so that we might show mercy to those brethren who are in need. Listen to what Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28 says. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. The purpose, God states, the purpose in giving us wealth, at least one of the purposes that God grants us wealth, is to supply the need of those who are lacking, of the fatherless, the widow, of the afflicted, I wonder, beloved, when we pray that God might in His rich grace and mercy bless the labor of our hands or bless even a financial investment that we have made, is it so that we might bless others or merely bless ourselves? Why do we desire to improve our lot in life? Do the spiritual and physical needs of people predominate in our thoughts, in our motives, in our prayers, and in our work? That he may have to give to him that needed, dear ones, is among the chief purposes stated by God for increasing our wealth. Certainly we are to supply our own needs, the needs of our own family, but we are also with the wealth that God gives to us to seek to supply the needs of others who lack. I would have you secondly to note from our text not only the steps to oppression, but notice this as well. From such devising of iniquity as discontentment, covetousness, and refusing to help those in need proceeds the actual violence of taking fields, taking houses, and even a man's heritage, according to chapter 2 of Micah, verse 2. The coveting, the devising evil schemes upon our beds at night, waking to fulfill those, those dreams or those thoughts, those plans, leads to the actual violence of robbing our fellow men. Concerning this phrase, a man's inheritance or heritage in chapter 2, verse 2, I find that quite interesting. A man's heritage, dear ones, is that which one has an unquestionable right to hold and to have by the law of God in nature as well as by the law of God in Scripture. It is that inheritance which he has received and has been entrusted to him from his forefathers and which he has an obligation to pass on to his heirs, to his descendants. And here again we see the utter wickedness and oppression of all civil governments that claim an interest and an implied ownership 
in that which even nature says belongs to a man and to his family by way of inheritance. Proverbs 23, verses 10 and 11. The Lord says, Remove not the old landmark and enter not into the fields of the fatherless. For their Redeemer is mighty and He shall plead their cause with thee. Don't go in to rob the fatherless or the widow. Judgment, dear ones, rests upon this nation. Judgment of God rests upon all nations that have deprived and taken the inheritance which belongs to a people and have not allowed them to pass on that inheritance, but have taxed it to such a degree that it's no longer the same inheritance at all. One application before moving on to the next point from the text. Is there not a particular application of this truth to the doctrine, worship, and government of the church as well? If we are not to remove material landmarks and rob men of their material heritage given to them by their forefathers, how much more are we not to remove spiritual landmarks and rob men of their spiritual heritage given to them by their forefathers at the expense of their own blood? Here is an oppression, dear ones, far more heinous than mere physical oppression. Here is thievery far more serious than mere physical thievery for this spiritual oppression. And thievery robs people of the inheritance purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Naboth could not sell to King Ahab the physical inheritance received from his forefathers, because as he declared to Ahab, the Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. How can we possibly sell the spiritual inheritance in doctrine, worship, and government received from our covenanted forefathers? Although no church, beloved, no church upon earth has been, is, or shall be sinless and without error. Nevertheless, that truth in doctrine, worship, and in church government, which has been faithfully passed on to us, must be diligently protected from all who by reason of discontentment, covetousness, or any other motivation or reason would move the landmarks. We must say, no, I cannot sell my, my heritage, my inheritance to you at any cost. God forbid it, as Naboth said to Ahab. That is why we find such strong language to this effect in the New Testament. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 16 I'm sorry, Philippians 3.16. Where the Apostle Paul says, Nevertheless, 
whereto we have already attained, where we have reached by way of these landmarks in doctrine, worship, and government, where we have attained, let us walk by the same rule and let us mind the same thing. And don't sell. Don't sell the farm. Don't sell the inheritance at any cost. If anything, enlarge the inheritance. Go forth and conquer more territory for the Lord in doctrine, worship, and government. But don't sell one inch of the inheritance that has been passed on to you. Paul similarly says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, 1 Timothy 4.6 If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, Paul says to Timothy. If you put them to remember these things, you will be a good minister of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul tells Timothy. Nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, Whereunto thou hast attained. Up to that point where thou hast attained, defend it, protect it, and do not sell it at any cost. And finally, many passages could be cited, but one more coming from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ himself in Revelation chapter 2, verse 25, where he speaks to the church or to the angel of the church of Thyatira, to the minister there, to the eldership, to the ministry, he says to them, But that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. What you have presently, where you have attained up to this point, hold fast. Cling to it. Don't let it go. Don't lose it until I come until I return. This is why the covenants of our forefathers are precious to us, for they bind us to the biblical boundaries laid out for us by our parents in the faith. The third last point from our text in Micah chapter 2 before we consider the practical or some practical considerations is this finally from our text note the personal objects of Israel and Judah's oppression not only men but the weakest and most helpless within the nation that is the women and children in verses 8 and 9 as we read earlier Oppression directed toward women and children. Again, dear ones, those whom not only God in His Word reveals to be the most helpless and therefore because the most helpless, to be defended at all costs by us, but those whom nature itself reveals to be the most hopeless are the very ones that are attacked They are the very ones who are plundered and robbed and spoiled. You see, this is to mention the fact that women and children are oppressed 
is in the sight of God such a heinous, indescribable sin to God that the most helpless in society are dealt with in this manner. God says, I cannot tolerate this any longer. Chapter 2, verse 9 says, The women of my people have ye cast out from their pleasant houses. Women who considered their homes a pleasant place to work by instructing their children, by preparing food and clothing for their families, by making their homes a delightful place, a pleasant place for their husbands. These women are forced to leave their homes because of oppression. Now, we don't want to simply look at the most obvious and conspicuous ways in which women are forced in various lands to leave their, their homes, their pleasant places, forced out of their actual literal homes, forced to beg. But this may happen, dear ones, where women are forced to leave their homes. They've been cast out from their pleasant places as well by a government or even by husbands or family members who force a woman to go to work who desires to remain in the home in order to minister to her children as God has appointed. There may be times in which single mothers or wives whose husbands are unable to work there are times in which they may have no other alternatives and necessity compels them to seek work outside the home. But I dare say, dear ones, it is an oppression to force women to work outside the home apart from such a necessity. That is a pleasant place for a woman and to cast them forth from their pleasant place and house is an oppression. We also notice in chapter 2, verse 9, where it says, From their children have ye taken away my glory forever. Even the children are not left untouched. If it is, dear ones, robbing, a robbing of God's glory to rob small children of the blessing which God has given to them in the form of material sustenance. That seems to be the, the uh, meaning of that phrase. To take away my glory forever from the children. To rob them and to cast them outside so that they are not provided for, not cared for. If that is an act of oppression, how much more heinous it is, how much more an indescribable oppression it is to murder them while they are yet in their mother's womb. To be in the safest place where God has placed a child and to be murdered while in the mother's womb how could we possibly think of a more atrocious demonstration against nature 
and against nature's God and taking away of God's glory from children by taking away their lives. But we may also consider that we as parents may oppress our own children by taking away God's glory and not giving them a distinctly Christian education. That is God's glory. That is something which God blesses our children with. They have a right to be instructed and to be trained in the ways of the Lord by not being faithful in catechizing our children and not being faithful in family worship and not teaching them the importance of having their own secret worship every day reading the Word and spending time in prayer and not bringing them to worship the Lord and preparing their hearts before they come to worship the Lord on the Lord's Day as to how they're to behave, how they're to to be attentive to the Word of God as it's preached, to prepare their hearts to receive the grace which God offers to them. To not teach them of of the many martyrs and saints throughout history who have stood firmly for the faith and who have not sold at any cost the heritage which has been passed on to them by their fathers. Not giving them a sound education in the home or in a very sound Christian school. This is to deprive our children of their glory, of God's glory to them, God's blessing to them. It is to oppress them. And anything else that is our duty to our children to give to them, whether of a physical or a spiritual nature, to deprive them of that which belongs to them is to oppress them. We as parents, even unwittingly, can oppress our children if we deprive them of those things which God says in His Word belongs to them. Many have looked upon Sunday schools as being a great blessing for children. But Sunday schools, dear ones, were not begun in order to minister to the children of believers, but were originally begun in the early 1800s in order to minister to the children of unbelievers, those who did not come to church, those who did not worship. It was an evangelistic outreach to children. In fact, parents at that time, Christian parents, would have considered it a grave and serious offense to say, would you like to send your children to Sunday school? What do you mean? Is that saying I'm not doing a good job in training my children? You think I'm going to allow someone else to have that responsibility and duty which God has given to me? You're going to separate my children from me when I come to worship God? You're going to send them to be instructed in many and most cases 
by unqualified teachers who simply raise their hands and say, I'd like to teach Sunday school. This is the duty, dear ones, of Christian parents, not of Sunday school teachers or youth leaders. Our last main point, practical considerations of these truths. Who are the needy? How do we evaluate who are the needy? Just because someone says, I have a need, does that necessarily mean that they fall into the category of the needy, the afflicted, the oppressed? Again, I cite from the first book of Discipline what I believe is very helpful information in answering this question. Remember again, this is from the Scottish ministers whom God raised up in that glorious reformation that occurred within Scotland. And they note this. Listen carefully. Every several kirk or church must provide for the poor within itself. For fearful and horrible it is that the poor whom not only God the Father in His law, but Christ Jesus in His evangel or gospel, and the Holy Spirit speaking by St. Paul has so earnestly commended to our care are universally so contemned and despised. We are, we are not patrons for stubborn and idle beggars who running from place to place make a craft of their begging, whom the civil magistrate ought to compel to work or then punish, but for the widow and fatherless, the aged, impotent, or lamed, who neither can nor may travel or labor for their sustenation. We say that God commands His people to be careful and therefore for such as also for persons of honesty, fallen into decay and poverty, ought such provision to be made that of our abundance their indigence or poverty may be relieved. In other words, dear ones, those who are needy and those who demonstrate their willingness to follow the Lord, to submit to His law, those over whom we can exercise oversight, those who will cheerfully receive the instruction and correction of faithful elders, those who are seeking with everything that they can to find work and who, because of disability, may not be able to work and yet love the Lord and want to seek His face. These are those who are to be ministered to. These are the oppressed and afflicted that we should search out, that we should listen to the cries and the pleas of We may not always be able to help 
as we would like to when someone is in a desperate need. We may not always have the, the financial means to help as we would like to. But I ask, do you desire to? Is it in your heart of hearts an earnest desire to minister to the needs of those who cry out for help? And the only reason that you can't is because you don't have. God hasn't given you the financial means to do so. Does your heart cry out with those in need that cry out to the Lord who is their defender and provider? Dear ones, you may not be able to help financially. The church may not always have the financial means to be able to help those who are in desperate need. But, dear ones, we can pray. We can encourage. We can help in very practical ways by watching children, opening our homes up for hospitality, even to provide housing, food as God provides. And we can, by God's grace, if we can't help financially, we can go out and seek from others who might be able to help rather than simply leaving the afflicted to cry out in that desperate situation. We can do what we can do by God's grace. The third practical consideration here is that there's a need for deacons. There's a need since God has established this office in the church. We need men and we need to pray for men who have hearts to show mercy to others, who are wise, who are honest, who do not covet but desire to show forth the mercy which Christ has showed to them. And finally, last practical consideration is this. Remember that Jesus Christ declares that our love for Him is inseparable from our love for and mercy shown to the brethren. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, the Lord speaks of a day of judgment when the nations are gathered before him. And he speaks to the sheep on one hand. And he says, enter into, the li- into life because you fed me. You came and visited me when I was in prison. You gave me water to drink. You clothed me when I was naked. You comforted me when I mourned and sorrowed. And they turned to the Lord and they said, Lord, when did we ever do these things to you? The Lord says, Inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And by the same token, he turns to the goats, to the sinners, to the wicked. And he says, depart into everlasting punishment because you didn't care for me. You didn't feed me or clothe me or visit me in prison. You gave me no water to drink. You didn't comfort me. 
And they say likewise, Lord, when did we not do these things unto you? And the Lord says, inasmuch as you did not do it to the least of these, my little ones. You did not do it unto me. There is an inseparable connection in our love for the Lord and our love for one another. There is an inseparable connection between the gospel that is preached and the gospel that is lived. Because it is a gospel that is unified and held together by grace and by mercy. Not simply for people's souls, but for their whole person, body and soul. For that is what God came to redeem. God help us not to be like Israel and Judah of old, but to give us hearts for the needy, the fatherless, and the widow, and to be their defender as God is their defender, and to be their provider as God is their provider. For this is pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do cry out to Thee on behalf of the afflicted Father, for the single parents in our congregation, for the widow, for the fatherless, for those who mourn. O Lord our God, let us not lie in bed scheming and devising evil, but Father, we pray that we would lie in bed thinking as to how we can minister for those who are in need. Father, as the wicked can't wait to get up in the morning to perform their wicked deeds, Lord, let us, not, let us be of a similar nature that we cannot wait to get up. But Father, that we cannot wait to get up to minister to others, to serve others, to lay down our lives for others. We ask our Father that Thou would grant to us this grace. Father, for... It is our duty and our privilege, for we have received freely from Thee. And we are to go forth and to give freely to others. This, Father, is a great confirmation, a great testimony that we belong to Thee. And we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. 
We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.